0: We're going to be reading this morning, John chapter 1, starting off in verse 29. This is what John writes. He says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I don't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one that you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified to this, that this is the Son of God. That's God's word. Thank you, Drew. It is good to be with you this morning. So good morning, everybody. Hope you're enjoying warm weather before cool weather comes. It's kind of the yo-yo that we've been in in 2022, maybe for maybe our whole lives, if we're honest, right? We're looking at a passage that we're familiar with, and, and I want to make this statement, and then we're going to just kind of build on it, if you will. It says this, that our familiarity with the gospel can bring a familiarity with Jesus. Our familiarity with the gospel can bring a familiarity with Jesus. I've entitled our text in our message today, Recognizing Jesus. Um, and uh, it's interesting in the text that we read, and the text that was read and preached last week and the week before, there is, this, there is this picture of the word recognizing. In this text, John says that I didn't know what I was looking for, but the one who told me who to look and how to look showed me. Uh, there is there is John paraphrasing earlier John the writer of the gospel who said that they did not recognize him those of his own and so this idea of recognizing is 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 interesting to me and I want to build on that a little bit because with recognizing comes familiarity right when you recognize something you're familiar with it you're looking for it if your wife sends you to the to the uh, store to find something and you're not sure what it is. She sends you a picture, you look, you find the picture, you locate the certain cold medicine, and then you grab it. And if you go back again, you know what you're looking for because you recognize it, right? You're familiar with it. A few years ago, Julie and I went to Yellowstone National Park. That's one of those bucket list places that I want to go if you know anything about me. I love the outdoors, I love nature. Colorado boy by heart. And so going to Yellowstone was was a trip that we were looking forward to, and we went and we spent a couple days there, and it was gorgeous. Just like I thought it would be, a lot of animals, a lot of life there, a lot of geysers. And initially, we drove drove slowly and took every rest stop in and stopped and saw what was there. And when cars pulled over, if you've ever been to Yellowstone, cars pull over all the time. And so when they pull over, you pull over because there's something to see, and, and sure enough, we grab our, our phones or our cameras, and we're hoping to see maybe this elusive picture of a bald eagle, or, or maybe a buffalo in, in the meadow, maybe an elk, or, or if you're lucky, some mountain goats or possibly a moose with, a, with, a young, with her young with her, and the geysers. Okay, we know of Old Faithful, but there are like 50 geysers in the park, and it's this crazy phenomenon. So I don't know if you've been there or not, but... But on day two, as we made our way around the park, everything was still gorgeous. But we didn't really need to stop at every single rest stop, did we? Um, Or stop at every geyser? I mean, honestly, if you've seen one geyser, you've seen them all. And and Old Faithful was amazing and worth the 30-minute wait for it to blow and and to watch it in all its glory. But as you left, you exited to the left, went to the souvenir shop, bought a, a coffee mug with a geyser on it, and made your way to the next cool thing. And it's crazy. As much as I love outdoors, in a matter of days, this amazing place was wearing me out. I have to admit, you've seen a buffalo, you've seen them all, right? Exit left. You see, familiarity can be a great thing, but it also can lead to some kind of complacency, Uh, maybe a marginalizing of a part of your life. Familiarity can make something beautiful, ordinary, it can make wonder mundane, it can take something holy and make it common. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to share it anyway. It's made the cut. A couple years ago, we were eating at McAllister's with some good friends, Keith and Phyllis Vaughn, and so we'd done that for a number of times. We'd meet at There There's a season where we we're meeting every week. And we were sitting down, and, and uh, Keith and I would order, and then you come back at McAllister's, you sit. And so we sat across from each other, and, and, and Phyllis is visiting with Julie, and she goes, Julie, I, I noticed that you have a, 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 a feather in your hair. And it was kind of during that time. You get, some of you might remember the fad of feathers in women's hair. Anybody remember this, this, this three-month fascination with this idea. I, be, I gotta be careful here, I gotta be really careful here. <laughs> we, everything was fine until Phyllis had to mention, hey Julie, nice feather in your hair. When did you get that? And my, Julie be, uh, my wife Julie said, uh, three weeks ago. And then there was a look on my face that I don't think anybody at that table will forget. One of, oh wow, three weeks, I didn't know you had a feather in your hair. That's not a good thing, guys. Husbands, it's just not a good thing. I have to admit, my wife's hair was longer then, right? That's fair, right? Hidden behind her, I'm sure it was hidden there somewhere. Just didn't notice that. That was great. Thanks, Phyllis, for that. I still appreciate her friendship for that. I do have to admit, my wife got new glasses this week, and I noticed the first day. So, come on, give me a break here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Familiarity can blind us, can it? It can blind us to recognize things as we should be more aware of. For a lot of us, the gospel is very familiar, isn't it? Some of us have grown up all of our lives reading the gospel. Many of us know the life of Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John very well. We can fill in the blanks as the text is being read. I know some of you could do that as as, uh, Drew read the text. The story of Jesus is familiar from the birth of Bethlehem to his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, from the feeding of the 5,000 to the famed sermon on the mount, from the calling of the disciples to calling out Peter, to a Passover meal and a prayer in a garden, to an arrest and a denial, a trial and a crucifixion, to an empty tomb and a remarkable appearance. We can become all too familiar with Jesus. Today, as we look at our texts that we're familiar with, I want us to slow down, and I want to encourage us to embrace the familiarity of this text with a renewed joy. I think maybe half our battle is is stopped by asking God to reveal the way he does best by his spirit through his word. In the beginning was the word of God, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. This Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the only one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then our text this morning, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. The next day. It's interesting, if you read through John, there are several verses that start with the next day. Jim last week talked about the next day, last day. The day before where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious, came to John the Baptist and wanting to find out who he was. You know, are you the prophet? Or are you a prophet? Or are you Elijah? We talked about that. And, and so we see this idea. And the next day, John just said, hey, I'm a pointer to the one who is coming. This day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, look, behold, as some of our Bible tells us, here is The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We'll come back to that. Verse 30. A man who existed before me, you know what? He ranks ahead of me. And I think this is an interesting section here. John is talking about, you know, there's a guy that ranks ahead of me. That's kind of an interesting terminology of how you would talk about Jesus, the coming Messiah. But that's how John chose to display and give us this illustration. He existed before me. We know earlier in John that we know what the existing was. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we see this very clearly. John says, I didn't know him. That's interesting. Uh, The other three Gospels tell us that actually John did know him. About 40 days earlier, John had baptized him. And so maybe he means something different than I didn't know him. Well, oh yeah, I knew him. I met him. I recognized him. I just didn't know him in a way that I would know him later. He said, John says, I came baptizing with water. And we learned what this baptism was all about. You know, why? Why did he come baptizing with water? So he might be revealed to Israel. So we can proclaim, so we can announce Israel. Look at the one who is being baptized. We need him to be revealed. He is more than just a man. Verse 32, and John testified, I saw a spirit descending on him from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me. You see, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Man, that's a whole other sermon right there. We're going we're to leave that for somebody else in John, the Holy Spirit part of that. It's just this incredible power. Let me just touch on it a little bit. is that God has given us this Holy Spirit, and it's not about the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit living in us so that we can be better at pointing, like John, to the prime, to Jesus Christ. I have seen and I testify, and I love this, that this is the Son of God. As you read John chapter 1, I think it's about 13 different titles are either insinuated or actually stated about this Jesus. This incredible apologetic given to us in John chapter 1. I think the thing that stands out is this. The testimony of John the Baptist is not based on what he knew, but about what God hold him to say about Jesus. So when I leave the house to go to Oklahoma City or say we as a family go on a vacation there's always this point somewhere down the road where you have this statement I know maybe you have it oh I forgot and then fill in the blank right At that point we make one of two decisions the decision to either go back home and pick up what we left or we'll just have to do without that you know, do I need my camera? Well, you got your phone. We'll be fine. Uh, do I need my wallet? Yeah, I kind of might need my wallet. No, you can pay. That's always, Julie says, you felt, forgot your wallet on purpose. No, I didn't. Uh, or maybe your pillow. That's a youth quake thing, right? I'll buy a pillow at Walmart. I'll use my jacket to sleep with my head. My child, yeah, I might have to go back for that. Although there's been a little bit of debate in some of those. Some things are worth turning the car around to go get, right? And I think verse 29 is one of those verses that we have to go back over and over, not just today, but a verse that should just be recognizable to us, be familiar to us. The section of scripture hinges on John's word in verse 29. When he sees Jesus approaching him, he says, here he is. I love my old scriptures that say, behold, look at. Hey, pay attention. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I thought about that. How was John the Baptist able to make such a strong statement? Always wondered if he truly knew what he had said, and did he understand the implications of what he was saying? There's a text in John 11, I, I think, that speaks to this a little bit. John 11 is, is the story of Jesus with some good friends. Actually, he's not with them right now. It's Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. And you know the story, John 11. Lazarus was not doing well. The, the, they had sent word to Jesus to come because Lazarus was really sick, and he may die. Could you please come? Could you heal him is what they were asking. And, and you know the story. Jesus was maybe late in coming, or Jesus had a different plan and, and we, we see the story just flesh itself out there. And, and then he finally gets there, and Lazarus had been dead for a few days. Uh, they didn't have a plot in the ground. They usually had a cave that was covered, and that's where Lazarus lie, as he had passed. And then there's this incredible prayer. Jesus prays this word. He talking to his father, he says, I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I say this, so that they may believe you sent me. And then he said the great words, "Lazarus, come forth." And I can't imagine, right? I mean, I can't think of a movie that would I would rather be at than this one. And Jesus, and then all of a sudden, Lazarus coming out, who had been dead for three days, passing and coming before. The response there in that text in John 11 is two. One of two, many believed it tells us. It says, but there were some who were religious who just got angry, and so their anger led them to go and, and find the people in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. And, and ultimately there is a, a confrontation and a meeting with the high priest at that time. And, and this is what I want to pay attention to Caiaphas was his name and he made the statement in John 11. He says, you know what? I know you're upset, but you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was not going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. I love that. He did not say this on his own. Uh, Years ago, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Maybe half of you may know this guy. His name's Art Linkletter. Anybody? Anybody remember Art Linkletter shows? I barely remember it. I'm sure I saw rerun. I wasn't actually alive. No, I was. I was actually alive during this time. And Art Linklater had this show in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, all the way up to almost 1980. And the show was a variety of different things, and it was usually a clean show. And so I remember my parents watching it, and I was getting to watch that at some time. And and so at the end of his show, he had this set, uh, just the end episode, part of the show was just this, statement or this place called uh, the people the children kids say the darndest things remember that you know kids say the darndest things and so i got on youtube and found a couple i thought they were pretty awesome there's a six-year-old boy named stanley and he and art league later you know he usually had that microphone he'd get down close to the the little boy or girl and he says what do you want to be when you grow up and the little boy says i want to be a bus driver or or a or a pilot and everybody giggles and smiles and he smiles and He asked him this question, suppose you're a pilot and all four engines on this big airplane suddenly stop right away, what would you do? And the little boy thought, and then he closed his eyes. He said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Another time he asked the seven-year-old Susan, he says, "What what would you think would make the perfect husband? Well, he would be a man that provides a lot of money. He loves horses. He would let you have 22 kids and doesn't put up a fight. And of course the crowd laughs and everybody thinks that's funny and then Art asks, so what do you think you're going to be when you grow up? And she says, a nun. (laughs) Kids say the darndest things, don't they? And sometimes what kids say are pretty profound, right? Just like Caiaphas, not knowing what he was saying, I don't think he was too far-fetched. I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to think that John the Baptist didn't quite understand or comprehend what he was saying even though it was given to him by God in John 1 the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world more profound than John could ever understand profound years ago i think of another profound moment was up on the stage actually years ago i was t- talking to jim a little bit about it we were up here and it was the end of the service and there was a life group up here and they had one of the little children in the group was going to be baptized and so after services all their life group and some of their friends and most of our staff was just up here and Jim was saying a few words about the little child who was giving their lives to Jesus. And he makes this statement, you've heard it before, probably if you've ever heard, seen Jim baptize someone. He says, after the baptism, after he, he or she gives their lives to Jesus, he says, and now you will have the rest of your life trying to figure out what you just did. You know, I think that's what's profound about what Jesus has done by becoming the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. There's a profoundness to these words. If you have familiarity with the Old Testament at all, you will see the idea of a lamb that John the Baptist is talking about here and immediately go back to the Old Testament. Just, let me, let me sh- just give you a picture of some of those. Genesis 22 is probably the first recollection of we ever being introduced to a lamb and it's the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham and his son Isaac, they're heading up a mountain to offer a sacrifice to God. And we know that story really well, don't we? And in that section, there's fire and wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering is what Isaac asks innocently. And I love just, again, profound words that Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Exodus 12, verses 3 and 4, it's right in the middle of, Israel being in captivity in Egypt, and it's plague number 10, right? That there is going to be a spirit, and all the firstborn of Egypt is going to die. But he gives some instructions to the Jewish people, and he talks about preparing for a Passover meal. The whole idea of this Passover lamb to be a substitute for the firstborn and the death. Throughout Leviticus, and numbers The lamb is used 34 different times to describe and refer to this sin offering that a year-old lamb without blemish would provide. Isaiah chapter 53, in the whole book of Isaiah, this picture, the symbol of the lamb is used by him to refer to God's suffering servant of chapter 53. Verse 7 says it this way, talking about Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. First Corinthians five even elaborates as Paul writes in talking about this Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. Jesus fits this type that each of these lambs from the Old Testament examples and set for us. He suffered in our place as a sin offering. He provides the release of the firstborn as the Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and Genesis 22 as the lamb of God that is provided. And not to mention the use of Jesus as a lamb in Revelation, used over 26 times. All of these examples of ancient sacrifices foreshadowed was perfectly fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. The Lamb of God is a title of redemption that John profoundly pronounces. And Jesus had the capacity to be our Lamb of God. John describes Jesus as outranking him before him because he existed before, and that's what gives him a capacity to be the Lamb of God. No ordinary human man Can take away sin and be the Lamb of God. No one is qualified to be your Savior. Don't think that any person can take away the sin of the world because they can't. You see, the Lamb of God qualifies because of his existing before, and Jesus has become the God human man. How is it that Jesus is without sin? Romans 5 tells it this way that everyone is born normal, everyone who's born normal is with sin. Jesus was not born like you and I, though. God ordained this God-man. Luke 1 tells us, it's this beautiful picture, as, as, as the angel is talking with Mary. And he says, how can I be with child since I am still a virgin? And I love these words. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity and becoming a man. 1 John 3, 5 says it this way, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. You see, we need a lamb and we can't be the lamb. (laughs) No sinner can take the place of a sinner. Well, how can the lamb of God take away the sin of the world? Well, first by Dying, and Jesus would die. You see, that's what lambs are for, right? I'm pretty sure I bought one of my granddaughters a lamb to hold. And and I'm not saying we can't do that, but when we look at Scripture, that's not what lambs were for, were they? You know, probably the softest version, they 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 were given to us to eat, but according to Scriptures, they were given to us to be sacrificed. Lambs are to be slaughtered. Jesus as God took on human form so that he could be slaughtered. A lamb of God takes away sin of the world because he needs to die. And then we would benefit from it. You see, we would benefit. First Peter 1 says it this way. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like the silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for us, for you. You see, Jesus takes away the sin of the world. You see, when our sins are taken away, his justice is atoned for, his (laughs) his wrath is satisfied and and the text says he will the lamb of god will take away the sin of the world okay there's a lot of debate on that so that means that it's kind of this universalist idea that so god just takes away everybody's sin we're good move on i don't know if we even need to recognize it because it's already been taken care of well the rest of the scriptures show us otherwise don't they Probably the famed John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes, that's our response, right? Jesus takes away the sin of the world, we have a response as we recognize to respond to him in belief. And will not perish but have eternal life. You see, recognition always leads to familiarity. Familiarity can be something to be acclaimed, right? It can be something to be elevated. It can be something celebrated. It can be something worshiped. And that's where we find us in Revelation this morning Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 and then 8 and 9. It says it this way Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you were purchased. You are purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Familiarity doesn't have to succumb to complacency or marginalization. Familiarity can recognize and respond with confession and with obedience and with worship. A couple years ago, as a staff, we started uh, just a time, a prayer time um, that continues on Monday mornings. And we we arrive before our staff meeting and we come into this room or maybe another room uh, in one of our facilities. And we just spend time before God just together responding to him. And thanking him and a, and a huge part of that is this time of confession and so i i just think it might be appropriate because i think where we find ourselves sometimes when we recognize god and so we recognize what jesus has done and it becomes familiar to a point that it's just all too familiar that sometimes we take for granted that god when he calls us to rest and to stop We just move on. It's like, you know, we'll catch it next time. Maybe just us corporately coming together to confess who we are before God will will force us to stop more often. And so I'm going to ask you to just read alongside with me uh, this prayer of confession. Okay? This prayer of confession. Hopefully it will be up there or else you're going to have a hard time reading with me. powerful words, powerful words that we don't or we shouldn't just read. We should let it pour over us as we confess our lives to him. We're going to move into the obvious role that we get to have. The Bible tells us On the first day of the week, they regularly gather together to remember the sacrifice, the body that was broken and the blood that was shared. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that, and then we're going to worship. Because I think that is responsibly recognizing who Jesus is. The Lamb of of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who took a punishment that we deserved. The Lamb of God who humbled himself and became a man and took on our sin. The Lamb of God who was a substitute, who took on what we deserved and bore the punishment of that so that we might be justified. The Lamb of God who removes our sin. And also removes the wrath of God so that we may come and remember. Let's remember. Let's remember the blood that was shed.